Buongiorno, benvenuto. Welcome to City Breaks Florence, episode five, which I'm going to devote to the Church of Santa Croce. Santa Croce, of course, meaning Holy Cross. We mentioned it in the last episode as being the church outside which you'll find the big Dante statue, but there are a number of other reasons why it's one of the most visited churches in the city. And the main one would be the fact that it's the resting place of a great number, 270 plus, famous Italians. In fact, in the guidebook to Santa Croce itself, the one you can buy when you get there, uh, they quote a 19th century art historian as saying the following. In the dust scattered in the temple of Santa Croce is written the history of Italian civilization." So I'm proposing a quick look at some Italian history that's connected with the church and also a quick overview of some of the most famous artwork there um, that people come all that way to see. And the main piece perhaps would be Cimabue's crucifix. I'll be explaining why that has such resonance for the people of Florence. Today it's still a working church. It's the home of the Franciscan monks um, belonging to a, a, a section called the Minor Convent Brothers and uh, the guidebook tells us that they are still present and vigilant uh, between the walls. And just to give the guidebook a last way of introducing its, itself, it also talks of the Church of Santa Croce as being, quote, a fabulous treasure that has been accumulated in the course of the centuries. First of all, I'd just like to talk for a few moments about the situation of the church, where it actually is. So it's just a slightly east of the city centre, or east of the cathedral certainly, in an area that's always been heavy, heavily populated. It's down by the river, a low-lying area on the banks of the Arno, and that itself led to it being a very busy hub of industry, a place where much work was done, particularly in medieval times. So the cloth trade, of course, was a big money earner in Florence. And um, being down by the river, this would be the place to which cloths from faraway places and all those lovely things that they were going to use for dyes for the cloths could be brought into the city. It was a good place then to set up the factories to work on all these things and produce the wonderful fabrics. And then, of course, you could send them, or many of them, straight off again by boat off to the far distant lands where they were going to be bought. There's a lovely description, or a number of descriptions actually, of this in Sarah Genant's novel, The Birth of Venus, because the heroine's father in that novel is in the cloth trade in the early 16th century in in Florence. And... um, This is how she describes the area in a few words. She describes it as being, quote, jammed with slum houses and children splattered with mud and streaked with colour from stirring the vats. So very much a picture of a thriving little hub of activity and industry. The area in front of the church, so these days the church square, has been over the centuries a place where various things of note have happened. Just going to mention two or three quite quickly. So in the 15th century, for example, um, this area was the scene of outdoor jousts held no less by people like Lorenzo de' Medici and Giuliano de' Medici. It was also a place where the Franciscans themselves would hold ceremonies. Um, sometimes if they were preaching to particularly large numbers, then they would have to spill outside the church and use the square as well so that they could everybody who wanted to hear them could do so. That was the case, for example, in 1633, when a large crowd gathered to hear a letter of gratitude read out to the Virgin of Impruneta, 
in thanks for the fact that yet another bout of the plague, which had devastated the city, seemed to have come to an end, and all the people who, or many of the people who had survived it, were very pleased to gather here and say their thank yous for that. There was another very auspicious occasion on the 14th of May, 1885. That was the date that the Dante statue was inaugurated. Um, and to show what an important event that was, I can tell you that it was attended by uh, the king. Vittorio Emanuele II um, came for that. And then in 1966, there was an perhaps even more auspicious visitor, and that would be Pope Paul VI. He visited Florence on Christmas Eve in 1966 and came to Santa Croce because that was the year of the floods of course and by December of that year they were just beginning to pick things up a little bit and and work towards repairing the damage and restoring the artwork and the visit of the Pope was made to encourage everybody. But perhaps my favourite of all the events that I've read about happening there is one from 1530 when one of the very first football matches ever was staged. It's slightly odd because actually in 1530 Florence was under siege. It was being attacked by the French. There were enemy soldiers throughout the city but that didn't stop them organising a football match. And there's a lovely description of these early football matches which I read in a little book which I bought when I was actually in Florence called Strolling Through Florence. I'll read you a short section of the description. It's actually talking about how today um, matches are held in commemoration of this very first one that was played in 1530. And this is how it reads, quote, As in the past, this historic football game is played by four teams representing the four historic quarters that administratively divide the city. Santa Maria Novella, the Reds, San Giovanni, the Greens, Santa Croce, the Blues, and Santa Santo Spirito, the Whites. Two semi-finals are held and the winners then dispute the final with a heifer as the prize. Each team consists of 27 footballers who play on a field entirely covered with sand measuring 40 metres by 20. The game lasts 50 minutes in all and consists of using fair means and foul to get the ball into the net, a goal being called a caccia goes on to explain that every time a catcher is scored, the players have to change ends. And slightly confusingly, there's actually something known as a mezza catcher, a half goal. And that can be scored by the defending team every time the others hoof a ball over the net. So a sort of a half goal. And if you're the attacking side, you can score a half goal if, in fact, you just miss, if the ball goes just past the post. You can imagine the debates, can you not, about how close you have to be to score a half goal. Anyway, so much for Florentine football. We have to go back a bit further in history, in fact to 1294, for the date when the foundation stone for this building was laid. By the Franciscans, of course, they wanted to build a church because they knew that the Dominicans, presumably their rivals, were building Santa Maria Novella across the city. So the Franciscans decided they would have an equally large and beautiful and imposing church. The work was mainly done by 1385. And there's a description written of a chronicler from the time, one Villani, of the day when the first stones were laid. So this is what he had to say. There were many bishops and prelates, clerics and religious figures, the Podesta, that's a politician, and all the good people of Florence, men and women alike, with great festivity and solemnity. 
a cardinal took the ceremony, Cardinal Bessarioni, but um, the Pope had come for that event too, and the Pope in 1433 was the wonderfully named Pope Eugenius IV. In fact, of course, the complex was much more than just a church because um, all sorts of other buildings were put up as well, the dormitories and infirmary, um, living quarters for guests, a refectory and a library. All of which gives you a picture of the whole edifice being a really a central hub in the area, a place that everybody would know, a place where many people worked apart from the monks. It was a centre of teaching, for example, um, sometimes for educational purposes, sometimes to train priests. And two well-known Florentines who are thought to have studied there are Giovanni de' Medici, who later became uh, Pope Leo X, and Dante. When you go to look round, you're bound to be struck by how much wonderful artwork there is to look at. But in fact, there are two occasions that I'm going to mention briefly on which the artworks were looted and many things were lost. So although there's lots left, we have to wonder what there would have been if that hadn't happened. And the first occasion was in 1529 when the French were besieging Florence and they looted Santa Croce. The monks had seen this coming, in fact, and they'd hidden a lot of things in a tomb in the sacristy, but unfortunately the soldiers found them and made off, off with as much as they could. Round about 1810, uh, there was a lot of religious suppression under Napoleon, and then again, many more wonderful works of art were looted from Santa Croce, as indeed they were from other churches in the city. Being a Franciscan church, um, obviously St Francis is um, very important, the building had actually started some 70 years after his death, and inside you'll find an altar panel by Benedetto di Maiano, who, which contains five different sculptured panels showing episodes in the life of St Francis. Vasari, he of the Lives of the Artist fame, um, had seen this and praised it as, quote, an extremely rare and beautiful thing. Slightly strange to relate how much expensive uh, building and artwork there is in the church, because of course the Franciscans are an order who favour poverty. So you might be wondering how it is that they managed to pay for all of this. And the answer is, it wasn't really them that paid for it. It was more that many of Florence's very wealthiest families um, formed the habit of paying for chapels in this building and in others, which they would then have dedicated to them. So here in Santa Croce, for example, there's a Medici chapel, which dates from 1445, and there are many other chapels and little areas devoted to many of the other famous families of the time. I'll read you some of the surnames. Um, Rinuccini, Belluti, Bellacci, Peruzzi and Tolosini. The Tolosini were believed to have come from Toulouse. In fact, that's why they were called that. And then there are two other families that we've already come across. The Bardi family have a chapel there. They were the family into which uh, Beatrice married instead of marrying Dante. And the Pazzi family, those of the conspiracy against the Medici family that ended up in the murder in the cathedral. Just a quick word about the basic layout of the building. Um, it's the largest Franciscan church anywhere in the world. It's built in a T-shape, which is known as an Egyptian cross, and it's got three naves separated by stone pillars. Outside the main building, there are two cloisters, and uh, in one of those is the Patsy Chapel to be found. And there's also um, an adjoining building known as the Museum of Artworks. 
And actually, that's the place to find the Chimabue crucifix that I'm going to be mentioning in a few moments. And then finally, there's a bell tower. Many people come to Santa Croce to visit the tombs. That became particularly popular in the 19th century. Santa Croce became really quite a place of pilgrimage because of all the all the tombs and monuments dedicated to famous people there. I think there are about 270 in total. So it's a little bit like going to St Paul's if you're in London or to the Pantheon in Paris and seeing really a collection of the country's most famous scientists, artists, musicians. A famous person who isn't here is Dante, as mentioned already. He's buried in Ravenna because that's where he died and uh, the city of Ravenna didn't see fit to give his body back to Florence. But somebody else who didn't die in Florence but is buried here is Michelangelo. Michelangelo actually died in Rome, but he had left specific instructions that he wanted his body to be brought back from Rome, smuggled if necessary, which is in fact I think what happened, um, and brought back to Florence so that he could be buried in Santa Croce. And that is what happened, and you can see in front of one of the altars the bust of Michelangelo himself and the statues um, for his tomb representing painting, sculpture and architecture. So, of course, that means that Michelangelo's funeral was held here in this very building, and there's a description of it in uh, Vasari's Lives of the Artists, and I'm going to read you a section from it. So it starts like this, quote, a rumour had spread that the body of Michelangelo had come and was to be carried to Santa Croce. The news passed from mouth to mouth and the church was filled in the twinkling of an eye. It was with difficulty that the bearers made their way to the sacristy to place the body in the receptacle destined to receive it. Although the priests, the black-clad mourners and the wax tapers are, without doubt, imposing and grand in funeral ceremonies, Still, the sight of so many artists gathered with so much affection around the corpse was also a very grand and imposing spectacle. The number of artists in Florence, and they were all present, was very great, for, if I may say so without offence to other cities, Florence is the seat of art as Athens was of science. But there were also so many citizens that the place could hold no more. Nothing was heard but the praise of Michelangelo. True art has this power. Another very famous tomb also here is that of Machiavelli, the historian, politician, secretary of the Florentine Republic, who served from 1498 to 1512. In fact, his monument wasn't put up when he died. It wasn't put up until 1787. But when you find it, you'll see a Latin inscription on it, which reads as follows. Tanto nomini nullum par elogium which I believe translates as something like, for so great a man, no eulogy is sufficient. And also next to his tomb, or on his tomb, there is a sculpture representing diplomacy. Try to remember that when we read some writings of his um, in, a, in a future episode. Not quite sure whether diplomacy is the word. Um, cynicism springs to mind a little bit. Anyway, diplomacy it was, was what was chosen for him. Galileo's tomb is also here, the mathematician and astronomer. We'll be talking about him again in a future episode for the moment, um, just to say that when you find his tomb, you'll see on it a bust of Galileo. That was done by a sculpture called Giovanni Battista Foggini. But in fact, the rest of the tomb was done later by one of Galileo's pupils, who was called Vincenzo Viviani. He made a bit of a bargain with the church and said he would finish um, the work of the tomb himself 
and in return he didn't want to be paid, he wanted to promise that he could be buried alongside his master. And that is in fact exactly what happened. And so when you go and look at Galileo's tomb, you can think that the producer of the sculptures that you see there is lying there too, or his remains. And the statues that he chose to represent Galileo are uh, one which represents astronomy and another one for geometry. There are lots and lots more um, amongst them uh, the tomb of Rossini, the composer, uh, the tombs of two chancellors of the Republic, Leonardo Bruni and Carlo Marsupini, and there are also, of course, many, many people from the various well-known families whose names I read out a little while ago who paid for various bits of the church to be finished. Some of them have their own chapels, some of them are just buried here and there. If you go once you've been in Florence for a few days, you'll probably start to recognise some of the family names. You do see the same ones turning up in many of the many of the different places. And the other main reason, apart from seeing the famous tombs, for visiting Santa Croce is to see some of the artwork. You may remember a scene from E.M. Forster's book in which one of the main characters goes to spend a morning at Santa Croce and have a look at all the famous things that are there. So one of the famous things is uh, a Donatello sculpture called the Annunciation. It's a stone sculpture which was gilded. It was made in 1433 and it was made after Donatello had been on a visit to Rome. And you can kind of see that in that um, it's a statue of Mary and the angel, the angel visiting her to announce the news that she's going to be the mother of God's son. And both of them have been sculpted, draped in layers of clothing perhaps modelled on some of those many, many paintings that had already been done of biblical fi figures in, in long draped cloaks and clothing. But it was one of the first sculptures to be done in which that same effect was very cleverly made from the stone. Another name you'll recognise who had something to do with uh, the sculpture and the design here, and that's Brunelleschi, because he, in 1433, began a commission to design the Patsy Chapel, so a chapel for the Patsy family. In fact, the work had to be finished because he died in 1446 and it wasn't quite done. So it's not all his own work, but it's deemed to be a really fine example of Renaissance architecture with its perfect proportions and its beautiful terracotta carvings and its stained glass windows. Giotto also worked in Santa Croce, as did one of his apprentices, one Taddeo Gaddi, and he started here working with Giotto, and then he was deemed to be very talented, and he was given, in the end, a whole series of paintings to do in his own right. And the series is called Stories of the Virgin, so you can see those here, and you can also see another picture painted by him called Dispute in the Temple. Both these things are in the Baroncelli Chapel. But I think it would be true to say that the one piece of art that's the best known in the, throughout the entire building is the crucifix, which was crafted by Chimabue. It's called the Crucifixion. Chimabue's dates are 1240 to 1302. It's believed that he made this crucifix in about 1280. It was originally made to be displayed in the church and then it was moved and put into the museum and in 1966, it was one of the very, very many pieces of artwork that was very badly damaged by the floods. But this one was restored very painstakingly and it took a whole 10 years. And in 1976, it was eventually returned to the church and a ceremony was held to welcome it back.
It has been restored, but it does still show the effects of some of the damage that was done. And so it serves as a reminder of what happened. And it also serves as a symbol of the fact that Florence did manage to get back on its feet after these devastating floods and that much of their artwork, not all of it, but much of it was restored. It's been put back in the original place with the slight change at this time. There's a mechanism there to lift it up should the church ever flood again. And so for that reason, um, and because Santa Croce was very badly affected by the floods because of its situation in the low-lying part of Florence near the river, this seems a good moment to just go over a bit more detail than we had in the introduction about the floods. The 1966 one took place on November the 4th, which is actually very spooky in its own right because two previous floods had been on exactly that same date, namely the one in 1333 and the one in 1844. So if you were superstitious, you could read something into that. So on that particular night in 1966, the river was very swollen and eventually it burst its banks and water was rushing down in towards the city centre at 40 miles an hour. And when it arrived, devastation ensued. One of the first buildings to be flooded was the Biblioteca Nazionale, which unfortunately stood on low ground facing the river and housed at the time 8 million documents and books, many of which, ironically, had been stored in the basement. They'd been moved there during World War II in an effort to keep them safe. Inside Santa Croce, the water rose to a depth of nine feet. You can still see plaques on the walls, actually, um, in the museum, showing you uh, the level that it reached. And so works of art and tombs, including those of Machiavelli and Michelangelo, were all submerged. In the nearby streets, water levels reached 20 feet in some places, and church bells were ringing out, but it was really very late uh, to be doing anything about it. Just complete devastation. In uh, Piazza del Duomo, for example, uh, the baptistry doors were ripped off, the, the ones known as the Gates of Paradise. Calculations done afterwards, it was thought that a tonne of what they called flood mud arrived in the city per head of population. So one tonne for every man, woman and child who lived there. And there followed one of those sets of circumstances that sometimes makes you feel a little bit better, even though something terrible has happened. And on this occasion, that was the arrival of the people who became known as the Mud Angels, largely young volunteers from certainly all over Europe, uh, sometimes in fact even from further afield, who arrived to do what they could to help get artwork out of flooded buildings, pass it along, help store it in places where it could await restoration. That was all over the TV screens in 1966 and has been talked about in Florence really ever since by Florentines, very grateful that when they needed it, people came from all over the world to help. But that doesn't take away from the fact that many thousands of people were made homeless. The tourism industry, of course, took a huge hit. All the shops in the centre were ruined. Restaurants and hotels were closed and damaged very badly. It's estimated that at least 30 churches were damaged, Many museums and libraries devastated, 14,000 works of art deemed to be completely destroyed or so badly damaged that restoration was going to be very difficult. And this is the moment when um, the Chimabue crucifix became a symbol of what had happened and a, an emblem of the city. One historian who watched it being carried through the streets so dreadfully damaged described it as being, quote, fatally wounded. 
but it was taken away in the van and gradually dried out and eventually restored. In fact, by the summer of the, ne- the following year, many of the hotels and restaurants had managed to reopen. Uh, restoring the artwork took longer, so for Chumabui's crucifix, uh, for example, that took 10 years. And it's estimated that 20 years after the flood, so in the mid-1980s, about two-thirds of everything that had been damaged had been repaired. There have been changes in Florence since then, so uh, priceless works of art and manuscripts are no longer kept at street level. Better flood barriers are being put in place near the Uffizi. A dam's been built. Um, they hold regular flood drills and have advanced warning systems. So everything that can be done has been done. Um, but the question, of course, still remains, could it happen again? What, for example, would happen if the electricity was cut off? How then would the Chimabui crucifix be hauled up as is intended to save it from the floods? I read an article from The Guardian on this and I quite liked the way it finished off um, because it did seem to sum up the situation and this is what it said. Perhaps returning the cross to its home was more important, the potent symbolism of recovery and resurrection outweighing other considerations. So there you have it, a quick introduction to Santa Croce, home of some of Florence's most famous tombs, home of also of some of its most famous artwork and a proud symbol of the fact that, devastated though Florence was in the 1960s, she's managed to recover and restore herself. That about rounds up this episode, so I'd just like to uh, thank you very much for listening and to say that I hope you'll join me next week when, for episode six, we're going to move to one of Florence's other must-see churches, the Santa Maria Novella, um, and talk a little bit about the history and the artwork, but focus particularly on three of the best-known artists who are linked with the church, talk about their lives and their work as well, and that would be Cimabue, Giotto and Fra Lippi. So I hope you'll be able to join me for that. For the moment, it just remains for me to say thank you very much indeed for listening, grazie and goodbye. Arrivederci. (laughs) 